Uh, right, it's a, a, a book that's full of hope, actually, Zachariah is. Uh, Christmas speaks of hope. Zachariah speaks of hope. He speaks of the coming Savior. Not hope for riches, not hope for ease, not hope for comfort, not hope for success, not hope for these temporal things. He talks about hope, real hope, true hope in spiritual things, in the reality of things as they are, and that should also affect the way in which we live. The world has had its problems in the past. It always will have its problems. We can look at history and can say what great problems there were in Cyprus when Alexander the Great was tearing through it with his armies. What great problems there have been when we looked at the times just in relatively near history to us of the Second World War and we think, thought that fascism was ready to take over the whole of the world and who could stop it? And then we looked at communism and thought to ourselves, who can put the brakes on Stalin and his uh, uh, forward march, as it were? Or who could hold on to China? Or who could stop the, 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 the destruction that might be coming? Or there are economic problems and woes, and we look at the world full of fear and trouble, and we look at the, the, the increase in nuclear weapons, and we think the world's got its problems. It always has had its problems. It always will have its problems. It's full of problems. But Zechariah is not a book full of problems. It's a book full of hope. It's a book full of hope. There will always be threats that would make you feel frightened. But God writes history. And we can also add to those threats the threats of health. The threats to our health and that's used to frighten us and to control and we con- we're considering those things very in a very real way. Nowadays, anything that is a totalitarian regime wants to impose itself and wants to control and yet it is not those that write history. It is still our God that writes history. It is still Jesus that's on the throne. It is still in the hands of our faithful creator who will not let it go and will not let evil forces rule and overcome and take over things as they should not do. They will not be allowed to. Christmas quite clearly states they will not be allowed to. There was evil Herod that was trying to kill the saviour that had come in, and yet it would not be allowed. It was not going to happen. It will never happen. The church of Christ is still Christ's church. It is still the apple of his eye, and it is still under his protection. So be very secure and very certain in those very big facts. When you start getting uh, anxious about things that are taking place, whether on a personal level or an international level, whether you think that things in your life are going wrong or whether you think that things in the world are going wrong, God is still God. And God will not stop being God and will not give up his right to be God and will not be disposed of or deposed from the rule and the place from which he governs the world. And he governs the world through Christ the one who loves us and the one who gave himself to die for us, so his intentions are for good. No matter what seems to be the situation around you, his intentions are for good. And so God writes history. He is ruling and he will forever rule. And the outcome of history is so completely in his hand that you need to be completely secure in that as Christians and happy in that with all 
the, 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 the fears and the, the stupidity that's spoken around and about you. Zechariah looks forwards and declares history is ruled by God and he declares the Messiah is coming and he declares what God is doing, what God is doing. He first looked back at God's people in history, really. Uh, uh, um, if we go back to Zechariah chapter 1, uh, verse 2, he says, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and turn from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So he looks back and he says, look, your fathers, those who we have come from, they were warned by God. They were warned from the prophets. God always acts after he warns. He doesn't just act and surprise everyone. He warns. He lets you know. He lets you know. He speaks to you. He speaks to you about your behavior. If you behave in a certain way, it will be harmful for you. If you behave in a certain way, it will be difficult for you spiritually. If you behave in a certain way, he warned them. He said, look, this is what was taking place. He warned them through the prophets. They were behaving in a way that they shouldn't behave. And because they behaved in the way that they should not behave, then that which he said to them would come about. The punishment or the correction that he was going to put on them, came about. And so they went into exile. They went into what we know as the Babylonian exile. It was about 400 years before Jesus Christ came. And the people of God were there for 70 years, roughly. There were three different waves of it, but don't worry about that. And so they were there in exile. And they returned from exile as they had been promised. They had the record of God. They had the promises of God. They had the history of God. And yet still they would not listen. Still they wanted to work things out for their own benefit, using their own wisdom that was tinged and tainted by their own sinfulness, so the end was always bad. And that's still a similar warning to us today as individuals. If you don't listen to the word of God, if you try to work things out according to your own wisdom and think that that part of the scripture doesn't speak to me because it doesn't help me get to where I want to be, then you will live in disobedience and you will take the consequences of that disobedience. And they took the consequences of it. They had the record of God's miracles. They had the record of God bringing them out of Egypt. They had the record of, of, of from before, from Abraham. They had the record of the kings. They had the record of the prophets and the blessings and what took place when they didn't walk with God and they knew all that and yet they decided to put it to one side and they doubted his word and they wanted what was harmful and they became dishonest and they became oppressive and they became full of drunkenness and full of their own selves and God says if you don't deal with yourselves I'm going to deal with you and he did in Micah 6.8 he says he has told you O man what is good and what the Lord requires from you to do justly Love mercy and walk humbly with your God. It's a reflection of God's nature. That's how he expects a nation to be. He expects you to be like that. He expects you to do justly, to be honest with your mouth, to be honest with your work, to be honest with what you do. 
and leave the rest with God. He wants you to love mercy and be nice and kind and good to other people. That's what he wants you to do. And he wants you to walk humbly, not with pride, with your God on a daily basis, to bow your knee to him, to walk that way. And in Zechariah 7, 9, a similar thing. He says, remember, he render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the sojourner or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. He deals with the hearts of you. Stop and think, what is my heart devising? Is it so full of myself that I'm not willing to look and put certain things to one side because I'm not willing to help the poor or because I'm not willing to bless others or because I'm so oppressed in my own sense of self-worth that I feel that I've got to oppress others and I've got to fight for my rights. Some of you need to be less self-centered and more merciful and more loving and this church here needs to be a reflection of our loving, our merciful, our generous, our great God. And God uh, promised this judgment and um, he will always do that. We can always dress our ambitions up in religious terminology. We can always use biblical terminology to uh, 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 bring about our desires and make excuses for doing those things that are not right. And uh, Zachariah was, re- was, was speaking to these people who were returning. See, the punishment had taken place and they knew that God had dealt with them and they had accepted it now. The, the hammer had come and they'd really come to a point where they said yes. And so they were returning from exile. And when they returned from exile, we have those two famous books, uh, more than two, but really uh, the two that we think about is uh, Nehemiah building the walls and Ezra building the temple. And they were returning back to worship Jerusalem, speaking about God and the place of meeting with God. And they were returning and they were building that. And they were making that the center of their worship. And they were returning from the exile. You may have slid from God and God will do those things that he needs to do to bring you back. Maybe you're sliding from God and you need to stop sliding from him because there's a warning here that you need to come back to him. Maybe the world's taken away your thinking and so you can only think about making money or think about other things and in an economic crisis that's, that, that's very easy to do. But he said, no, you walk humbly with your God to start with. So he brought them back and after 70 years of exile and uh, he was still faithful to his promises and his creation. The mighty Babylonian empire was not big enough to stop God dealing with his own small set of chosen people again. And there's nothing in this world that is big enough to stop God dealing with his church. There never will be, there never has been. All powers are used by him and created for him and are working to the glory of his name, no matter what they think about themselves. That is what is happening. And the church of Jesus Christ is his bride that he is making beautiful for himself to rule with him forever in heaven. And he purifies her. And I want you to be confident in God's good rule. If that's all you walk away from today, feeling that my God is in control. Those things that I was worrying about, I'm not going to worry about them anymore because I know that my God is really ruling in the heavens and his attitude to me is one of love and one to bless and I can rest in that. In fact, we read it in the psalm, in Psalm 90, and and, and the praise of the, 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 the promise of the Messiah was coming and Zechariah was very clear about that. Okay, you're a small people, you're returning, but there is a promise of a Messiah. 
And it was coming through Adam, through Abraham, through Moses, through David. And, 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 and it was still God's promise. And Zechariah saw this clearly. Now, 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 don't just look at the prophets and think, well, they're walking along one day down the street and zap, this thought comes into their mind and they write it down and that's God's revolution to us. And then they're going somewhere else and all of a sudden, bang, another idea comes into their heads or they're sleeping and they have these dreams. Well, some of those things happen, but really these people were so drowned in the word of God that they were searching the scriptures to see what was taking place. And it was through that, that God spoke to them and added things to Scripture because they saw the way in which God was working. So there was definitely a way in which the people were fully involved and you want God to work with you and deal with you in your lives. Well, you've got to do it in the same way. You've got to soak yourself in knowing God through his Scriptures and the way in which he deals and the way in which he works and you get to know his nature and the way he is and then you can be more confident in the outcomes that will be expected in your lives. He is the same God, and he dealt with these prophets in that way, and that Zachariah was searching and studying history and God's word and how God works, and he came to know him, and God spoke to him and spoke through him, not through superstitions, not through him just standing up and saying, I've got this great idea, follow me. It was dealt with by God, and Zachariah speaks of judgment and salvation, the two major themes that come in this book. We have this God who is judge, and he brings about salvation in the very same one. If we split judgment and salvation, we get a very hard God. And then we get a very soft God. Our God is neither extremely hard and untouched by our feelings, neither is he so soft that he can be manipulated by you. Our God is both judge and saviour in himself, and he brings the two together to Zechariah. And people are afraid, and, and, and we talked about sin, Brother Bola talked about sin, and, and judgment should bring about a sense of discomfort in us. And judgment does bring about discomfort because we are sinful. When Adam hadn't sinned, judgment wasn't a thing that was really thought about because he hadn't done anything that needed a judgment against him. So God is in the heavens and God is holy and God in his nature, being holy, cannot accept anything within his creation that is unholy. It's not. Two different forces of good and evil. It's not the yin and the yang. It's nothing like that. It is God is holy and in all of his creation there will be nothing that will be unholy in the end because it cannot dwell together with God. And we are unholy. We are made unclean. Not just by the fact that we inherit sin and sinful nature but the fact that we do willingly ourselves those things that are wrong and make ourselves unclean and make his creation unclean. And yet, we're concerned about a God of wrath and a God of anger. That is just a natural working of God against that which is wrong and he has to deal with it because the two can't stay together. God cannot have wrong in his good creation because it speaks of himself. It is relating to himself. So what did he do? Like a doctor. That a patient comes to that doctor, this oncologist, and this patient comes, and he's a, a young person, say a young woman that comes to him, and she has cancer, serious cancer. And that doctor, do you know what? If he's a good doctor, 
He hates that cancer. I mean, he hates every cell of that cancer in that person. He wants to see every single one of those cancer cells wiped out. And he sets to battle wiping it out because he has to deal with it. Because it's spoiling something. It's spoiling that life. And so he hates it. And God hates the very sins that are spoiling your life because you are his creation and you are made for his glory and he made that he loves you and you won't stand there and say, yes, God, please deal with that sin that's in my life because it is against you. And that's what Jesus says, yes, I can deal with it. I am the only one that can deal with it. But God will deal with your sin only through Jesus Christ and you cannot wipe it out yourself. So can God be the judge and the saviour at the same time? Well, of course he can, and thank God that he can, and hallelujah that he can, because that's where it is. And so we have these pictures in Zechariah, a few different pictures. We've got this picture of a Joshua, who is a high priest. Joshua is the name that Jesus comes from. This saviour high priest that was dressed in dirty clothes and they were taken off him. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. He actually took them on himself so that they could be dealt with, and then they were taken off himself. Or the branch of God's servant, and the way in which he talks about these people that are going to come, Joshua the servant, the branch. They're ones that are tied intimately to God as well as ones that will be coming and doing the work of God. Or Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but my, my, by my spirit, saith the Lord. Pictures of Jesus and the closeness of God to the dealings that he has through this one that would come. Think now to the exile return. The place of worship is being rebuilt. And they think, uh, 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 uh. so they think to themselves, right, what's going on here? How should we behave with worship again? We need to find out. We need to get back to what we used to do before. We've got to come back to God who wrote about these things. And we've got to deal with them. And so they ask about fasting in chapter 7 and 8. They say, well, when and how often should we fast now? We need to get on with our fasting. We need to do our religiousness. We need to do our worship. And Zechariah takes that theme up and he says, well, he says, you've got a problem here because all your fasting before was a pretty waste of time, really. You were just feeling self-righteous about it. He says, you need to fast from sin. That's the real issue. You need to get rid of the sin and the wrongdoing and you need to return to God and live knowing God and as God's people, as a cleaned people. He answers, the issue is in the heart. The fact is, that when you are sad, when there's something difficult going on in your life, there's a heart sickness that goes in. Many of you are young and maybe you don't experience that quite so often. But some of you have experienced the bitterness and the heartache of a real sadness. And when you experience that bitterness and that heartache of a real sadness, you just don't want to eat. It's something you don't want to do. So when we come to the New Testament, we talk about fasting and prayer. We put aside food because there's something that affects our heart in such a way that we want to deal with it as a church or as a nation or as an individual. Fasting. But, now when you go to Nigeria, you know, and, and uh, uh, um, Jacob's invited me to his wedding. Did you know that? He's not found a girl yet, but he has invited me to his wedding. 
Uh, so maybe he's wanting me to find him again. I'm not quite sure what he's on about, but there are some of others of you that said, Pastor Phil, will you come to our wedding? I would say, if you give me enough money to get on the plane, I might do. Um, but they say, some of you, that the weddings are big. You maybe have a thousand people coming. A thousand people? How do you feed a thousand people? He said, well, you have to be, get food for a thousand people. But God, they're not bothered about the wedding. They're bothered about the food, you know. Do you fast at a wedding? No. You want to go for the food. It's a celebration. It's a joyful event. It's a celebration. That's what you do. When Jesus, you remember he was criticized because his disciples weren't fasting. And what did he say? How can they fast when the bridegrooms amongst them can't do it? And then he talks about a great big feast coming up that many are invited in. And he's talking about the feast of heaven and the security that we have in Christ. And that's what you're invited to, this great big feast, this great big wedding. But Zacharias says your fasting's all wrong. It's not of the heart. It's not of sin. You're not dealing with that which you need to deal with in your life. You're trying to put a religiosity on the top of your lives and you're not really getting down to grips with God. God's church is a great celebration. You know it's a great celebration. Why don't you want to come to church? Because it's a great celebration. It's a celebration of all that God has done for us. It's a celebration of God's rule. It's a celebration of Christmas every day almost. It's a celebration God, of what God does. God sends his son. God comes to us. God joins himself to our humanity. He celebrates our humanity. God loves you. Celebrate your humanity. It's good humanity. You are created well. God invites you to celebrate him and his forever rule, no matter what fearfulness seems to be around and about. And how does this judge come? How does he come? Well, we know he entered the world as a baby, as a human in in, in frail, fragile humanity that was dependent totally on humanity to be fed. He was totally dependent on his mother, like every baby is. He came and entered our experience completely. But as we read here, we go, rejoice greatly. I'm reading again from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Have you got the idea of the celebration that's taking place here? What did the angel say to the shepherds? Fear not, for I bring you tidings of what? Great joy. Great happiness. Great celebration. God is dealing with everything that is wrong. In Christ, as only God can. The Saviour is born. He comes. He comes. Behold, your king is coming. Your king. Not to a kingly family, as was thought, but to a poverty-stricken family that he carried throughout his life. This this, this, uh, uh, thought that his mother and father weren't even married when he was born. 
He carried the stigma of it. But he was born into poverty. But this was the one in whom dwelled all the fullness of God. Who was the only one that was holy and touched by sin and never sinned but loved completely. And he looks at you. As a baby he looks at you. As a man of 33 he looks at you. And he has nothing but love for you. And no matter what sins you've done and you look at his face, he looks back at you and he says, I love you no matter what harm you've done. No matter what things are wrong in your life, I love you completely, completely and totally. So much so that even though you don't deserve any of this, I still love you so much that I will die in your place to free you from all that wrong and that sin and that which blights you. He comes in peace. The king of peace and the people are called to shout and sing and rejoice. It's good. Amen? It's good. Do you feel the goodness of what's taking place? The rightness of what's taking place? The cleanness of taking place? The hope that's what's taking place here? That Christ comes to us, our king of peace. And they're called to shout and rejoice. They're told by Zacharias, rejoice. Get your guitars out. Get your drums out. Get your dancing out. Rejoice. Celebrate. Get out there and really enjoy what's taking place. Shout aloud. Rejoice with joy. Heaven and earth, rejoice. At his birth, there was a heavenly choir. The angels sang. Tidings of great joy, peace on earth, goodwill to man. God wants to deal in goodness with you. Shout, sing, rejoice, be happy. God is still God and God is still ruling. And no matter what problems seem to be around and about the church, that's a different view. God is good. We are full of hope. Real peace. And he came. Where did he come to? Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. He came to Jerusalem. And we know that Jerusalem takes its name from the, the city of Shalom. The Jewish word for that's more than just peace and comfort. It's completeness and complete health and everything is right. And he comes to the city of everything is right because that's the city of God. The city where God dwelt in his temple. And he came to his temple. He came to his own people. Sadly, they didn't acknowledge him but he came, the king of Shalom, the king of Jerusalem. And as Jerusalem was replaced as a place of worship, because he said, who is the temple of the living God? You are the temple of the living God. The place of worship is with you. God is dwelling with man through his spirit. You are the temple of the living God. You are the temple of the living God. What has sin got to do with your lives? What has selfishness got to do with your lives? What has greed got to do with your lives? What has wrong got to do with your lives? What has uh, uh, gossip got to do with your lives? What's it got to do with your lives when you're dwelt by the Holy Spirit? Has that got any place? What is seeking great riches got to do with your lives? Instead of seeking great mercy and seeking great love. What's that got to do with your lives? It's nothing. 
Jesus came to save, not to judge. You remember that? Our king in peace, he comes. How does he come? Our saviour, our captain, our warrior. He alone who defeats Satan. He comes on a donkey. He came. This is a Palm Sunday talk, really. He came as a baby, but he came to Jerusalem as, not as a warrior, not with a sword of justice in his hand. He came in peace on a donkey with people shouting, Hosanna, God's with us. He came in peace. He's coming to you in peace. He comes in Christmas in peace to you. He comes in peace because he's going to fight for you. There is a fight that needs to take place, but you can't deal with it. You can't get rid of your own sin. You might be able to do many things, but you can't do it. That's why you need to humble yourself. That's why you need to bow the knee to him. That's why it's difficult to come to faith because it takes a sense where you get rid of your own arrogance. You have to come before him. Nine eleven. how does he do it? As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant, with you. He made it, he sealed it, he declares it by his blood. The Old Testament spoke of sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice. When you sin, you sacrifice. When you sin, you sacrifice. A life for your sin. A life for your sin. A life for your sin. The baby was killed for you. A life for your sin so that you need never worry anymore. And who secured it? It was he that secured it. He himself. Just keep this one idea that we keep slipping away from so very often as Christians. He does it. We can't do it ourselves. Our hope is completely in him, not in our holiness. Our hope is not in our goodness, in the way in which we live well. It's in him constantly. And we keep slipping away and he keeps needing to bring us back. Trust Christ alone. He has done it. You can't add to it. He is our peace. And remember, both in Zechariah and in in Psalm 110, we see who it is, really. The Lord says to my Lord, he said, the Lord sent the Lord. It is God from God. As we sing, true God of true God, true light of true life. Many nations in Zechariah 2.11 will join themselves to the Lord. You know the Lord has sent me. Many will join to the Lord and the Lord has sent me. You get this constantly, him trying to get you to know that it is the Lord that's doing it through the Lord. Our God through God. Just to clear up one or two little bits of confusion that I sometimes hear coming about. Uh, 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 Jesus saves. He alone saves. Not your religion not your religiosity, not your good works, not your goodness, nothing else he alone saves. He saves by his death and resurrection. That is what saves you. Christ's death and resurrection. You say, well, look, by faith you're saved. Your faith is the experience with which you enter into salvation. It's the thing that ties you to salvation. Of course you can't be saved without faith because it's all part of the same action that takes place. You can't separate it. 
You can't separate the experience of faith when you are saved, but your focus is not on your faith, your focus is on the Saviour. You don't look and say, is my faith strong enough or is my faith not strong enough? You say, has Jesus died for me? Let me know Jesus. And then when you know more and more about Jesus and love him more and more, you look back and you say, well, my faith got a bit bigger, but you're not concentrating on your faith. You concentrate on your faith and you lose Jesus. You don't worry about the level of your faith. You concentrate on knowing Jesus. And in a similar sort of light, we have the same thing that comes about because we talk in the same way about repentance. Have you repented enough? Have you repented of every little sin? Have you been sad enough? Have you really beat yourself up enough before you can come to God? Have you repented tro- properly? Well, 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 no, it's not like that. When you see Christ, who's died for you and you've trusted him for your sins, and that, that automatically means that you've turned from one way of looking and you go to the other way. And that's a repentance, okay? You are sorry for the way in which you are. You acknowledge your sin and you turn to Christ who is a saviour. It takes place all at the same time, but you don't sit there looking at your repentance, thinking, is my repentance good enough? No, you look at Christ. Then you will repent more when you look at Christ, but not in a sad and a morbid way. In a joyful way, because you know your Saviour has done so much more for you. So be careful about that. Look at Jesus. That's all. Rejoice in the Saviour King who comes to his people, who comes to his temple, who comes and is now in his heavenly temple that the earthly temple was a picture of, ruling. Last week, day 14 of the Advent readings, I don't know if you read them, they were really blessed by it, where it talks about history being broken too, and there was a before and an after, and all the blessings that we have through Christ, and I'm just going to read them quickly to you. The incarnation is a blessing from Christ, God with us, Emmanuel, crucifixion, the atonement, where he deals with our sin, the resurrection, so we've got life with him, propitiation, where he puts aside or deflects our punishment, the ascension where he is exalted and on high and Christ's heavenly reign, he is ruling. And we are called to rule together with him. Do you see the great position that you're in? The outpouring of God's spirit upon believers. You have God's spirit, don't you realise what a great privileged place you're in? Don't you realise the greatness of that? Missions to the world taking this good news of real health and real salvation to other people. Haven't you entered into that? Haven't you got a vision for that? Haven't you got that in your heart? Service. The gathering in of the nations. The New Testament scriptures are in your hands. You can pray in Jesus' name. You couldn't do that before. You have joy unspeakable and full of glory and you have certainty of eternity. It's not. Oh, a risky business. You know, it's all that God does it. It's no risk. You know, nowadays you, 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 you worry about risks. You worry about risks of things. You know, you, 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 do I invest in this or do I do that? There's a risk to it, okay? There's always a risk. Is it a certainty? For people who gamble, it's a, it's a certainty. I'm gonna, I'm gonna win. You know, don't put your money there. You know, some people are good at risking. Some people are bad at risking. Maybe it's a certain gift that you have. Some people are given the ability to make money for God. Some people are given the ability to love and look after others and do nursing and doctoring and all sorts of other things. They're gifts of God. 
just like everything else is, we thank God for our gifts that he's given us, whatever they are. It doesn't matter what they are. In one sense, it matters to us, but use them to glorify God. But there's no risk with salvation. People in my family might make fun of me. There's no risk. I might lose my job. There's no risk. There is no risk with Jesus. He can't half save you. He cannot fail in the way in which he saves you. There is no risk. There might be discomfort in this world, but there is no risk. It is certain, because it's him that does it, not you. Be glad on that. Be secure in the one who came and who reigns on high. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. Dear Lord God and Father, we do again thank you for your goodness to us. Your goodness to us is hard to imagine. It's hard to fathom. We don't have the words to be able to express it. We're limited. We want to know more and more of your goodness. And uh, we do pray that we would see more of Jesus. Oh, help us to look at Jesus more and more for the glory of your name. Amen.